A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Quote, not all governance is created equal. Data governance as a data mesh value driver and lever. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Lynn Knoll, data governance lead at AIM Consulting. To be clear, she was only representing her own views on this episode. Some key takeaways or thoughts from Lynn's point of view. There is a strong data governance value proposition in data mesh around making data broadly, quote-unquote, safer, better, and easier to use and share. Lean into that value and communicate it widely. Number two, potentially controversial maybe, many organizations doing data mesh are moving from a very centralized approach, and they have certain concerns and approaches they should take. While other organizations are overly decentralized and need to be using different approaches to migrating, really consider these as two completely different approaches that land on a similar end approach in data mesh. But we need to stop kind of thinking that the practices for coming from a very centralized should mirror the practices from coming from a very decentralized approach. I I do like this one. I think it's it's, uh, a useful framing that I hadn't really thought of. Number three, you should look to return governance to its original meeting, guiding and steering. Jamak says this in her book as well. And data mesh governance shouldn't be about control. Number four, potentially controversial maybe, not all governance is created equal. You know, quote unquote, she said that. There are non-negotiables. Infrastructure, security, and data classification are non-negotiable. Don't over-index on sharing data at the expense of crucial governance. Number five, shift your governance left. 
shift left the responsibilities where appropriate, but also shift governance left in your timelines. It needs to be part of the build processes. For too long, we've tried to add governance at the end of the process. Number six, if you were doing data mesh, you have to understand the existing organization governance structure, whether that is called data governance specifically or not, and align with it. Legal, risk management, IT, etc. Make sure they are all aware of your work and give them confidence you will keep things governed well as you're moving towards data mesh. Every member of a project team or on a consulting engagement is obligated to deliver value. That means you need to translate your work to business value. Lynn is specifically doing that. Governance isn't only risk mitigation. It should have incremental value. So think about how this actually governance drives value. It's value creating too. Number eight, in data, we too often, quote unquote, confuse the pipes for the water meaning we focus too much on the plumbing instead of the resource people want. Understandable, usable, trustable data. Number nine, consider telling business users you are providing them an ecosystem of capabilities instead of a platform. They can understand that they can have their quote-unquote habitat, you know, and they can customize aspects to meet their own needs, but that is all needs to work well together with the other habitats. Number 10, federated computational governance is an overly scary term. Break that down for users and what it means for them and why it actually makes their lives easier and better. Number 11, potentially controversial one, quote, if you automate something that users aren't expecting to have automated, they will be extremely surprised and disoriented by the platform. So, you know, make sure to communicate and ask people what they actually want automated. What you see as, uh, you know, friction might be value add work for them. Communicate. Number 12, you can plan out a lot of things, but they just won't survive, you know, quote unquote, first contact with the, the data model and or business model. Be prepared to iterate don't plan too much and be flexible. Iteration is great and you are implementing what new you've learned. Number 13, if your organization is coming to data mesh from a highly decentralized approach, it's very likely there are pockets of data that never were put into the central data infrastructure. It will probably be hard to get people to trust sharing that data and giving up control of it because the previous approach couldn't handle what they were doing. Number 14, potentially controversial. Part of data mesh or any transformation initiative, you need people who have ownership over, you know, the responsibility for organizational change management, driving buy-in at that personal and organizational level. Scott note, I kind of like this, but it's also scary. Who has the responsibility of driving buy-in specifically? How do you specifically say you're the person that's going to drive buy-in? We kind of all need to, but there should be someone at the end who's responsible for making sure that happens. Number 15, and finally, use the, the phrasing capability instead of feature when talking data platform. What capabilities are you offering to enable your use cases? And your capabilities should be very use case agnostic. 
Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. excited for today's episode. I've got Lynn Knoll here, who's the data governance lead at AIM Consulting. To be clear, though, she is only representing her own views. So we're going to be talking about a whole heck of a lot of different things, you know, but like a big one that we're going to start with is the micro and macro understanding of your data work and the value, you know, are both crucial. How, how do you think about how do I get value out of what I'm doing right now, but how does it play into the bigger picture so that we're not just looking at all these small, not interconnected wins instead of smaller things that all build up to much more value? How do you include governance as part of the build process, right? How do we shift that that governance left, not just from a responsibility, but left in the actual pathway of, of your development and, and thinking about that? Uh, what problems should actually be assigned to the platform and what should be on the product teams. This has been one that's come up in a lot of conversations lately because there's kind of this conception of the platform is magic and it's just going to do everything for us and, or no, the platform or the product teams have to handle everything. And the platform is just kind of only doing the data processing. It's like, we have to figure that out. Um, governance and adoption drive, you know, organizational change and, and you need the governance and uh, adoption to drive that organizational change. You need all three. You can't just, you can't kind of skip any of that stuff. Then we'll get into a lot of the like, what's in it for me? How do we actually talk to people? How do we think about data governance versus, you know, classical data mesh governance? What does this actually look like and change and, and kind of aligning stakeholders as well? So like I said, a whole lot of different things. Hopefully we'll get to all of it. Maybe we won't, but that's totally okay. But before we jump to that, Lynn, if you don't mind giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Sure. Thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. I do answer to Lynn Noel, but Lynn Noel is how my family pronounces it. Um, as, I, as you said, I'm a data governance lead with AIM Consulting. I'm an independent consultant. Um, and have a background that ranges from the Fortune 5 to the Hot 100. Um, so I've been at big companies, small companies. I've been in data for about 25 years and uh, have an interesting background coming through content management. I spent some time as a director of collaboration services with NTT Data doing uh, the first three SharePoint governance plans for one of the six largest IT companies consulting companies in the world. So got my start with governance there. Um, have an architecture background and have done some, um, I specialize in no-code, quick application design for platforms, again, like SharePoint and uh, Salesforce. And um, did a degree uh, program, uh, degree programs in uh, user experience design and in digital business strategy. Um, so like to keep learning, enjoy, um, continuing my career development. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is that I'm VP of membership of the data management association of new England. So if you are in new England and interested in data, you should definitely reach out to me. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, it's funny because the, the, um, 
that content management system background that this you're I think the third or fourth person that's been on like Karen Passmore was talking about that a lot as well. And she's also her company's uh, focused on UX. So it's it's kind of like you're the, this thing of, hey, we've seen where all this stuff goes wrong. And if we aren't focusing on UX, then none of this ends up working. It's just you're creating data for the sake of data. So I, I love that that's kind of a, a common theme for a, a lot of people out there is that are coming to data mesh from the historical data perspective, but also like we need to look at this in a fresh way, but we can't just throw out everything we've learned. We've learned a lot. We've learned how this stuff goes wrong at, at scale. So um, I, I think jumping into that conversation of the micro and the macro understanding, like how are you working with your, you know, your, your um, customers or your, you know, the, the teams you're working with about figuring out how to take kind of what is our macro goal and break that into the smaller chunks, but still, instead of just focusing on these small, quick wins that are not interconnected, that, hey, you know, this this bit of work is worth, you know, one point of value, this bit of work is what, worth one point of value, and this third one is worth one point of value, but you put the three of them together, it's worth five or six total combined points that it starts to, to kind of snowball and, and interact. Like, how do you think about breaking down that work in an appropriate way to build to that? Or how do you think about finding those larger pieces of work and then not having people go, what we've done historically with data is just trying to do all of it in one big thing instead of, can we chunk it into smaller things that actually built uh, in, so we have less risk and it's easier to build to? Sure. One of the things that gives you an edge up with data mesh, gives you a leg up, is that data governance is one of the four pillars of data mesh. So people who are going to embark upon a data mesh project are, one hopes, going to have some awareness that in addition to the self-service platform, in addition to the computational part, that federated computational governance is really essential to data mesh and I certainly have had the opportunity uh, with AIM and with our client to be part of the engagement from the very beginning. They knew that governance was going to be important. They may not necessarily have known why, but Data Mesh said it was, so they went and got a governance person, which was great. So um, from the beginning, I actually got to start with the standard data governance charter with establishing the definition of data governance, what's the um, business value and the value prop for making data safer, better, and easier to use and share. So that's my elevator pitch right there um, for what data governance is and why you should care uh, as an enterprise and as individuals. So I would say that I started out on this engagement at the macro level with the opportunity to build a charter, to work through an operating model, to say that data governance is at the hub of data management, but it's not the whole thing. Um, I am. I also should have mentioned I'm a certified data management professional from uh, CDMP, uh, from the Data Management Association International, and uh, CDMP and DEMA. I talk about the DEMA wheel which has data governance at the center, but all of the spokes fanning out take you into that everything, everywhere, all at once view of data. And 
the opportunity that Data Mesh gives us to remind people that data governance is at the hub of how you make data safer, better, to ease and easier to trust, use, and share will really give us an opportunity as data mesh professionals to engage with data governance. So, and and how do you think, you know, you, you start at that macro level and how, how do you actually start to break down things into like, we're finding use cases and no, your use case is too large. How do we break it down? But also kind of, you know, traditional data governance has been a bottleneck because everything's had to flow through the governance team instead of flow through the policies and that the governance enables that, you know, instead of it, it being something that needs to be processed internally, that governance is embedded into the the workflows instead of, you know, the teams have to know everything about governance. It's already embedded in the workflow. So like kind of how that, that interplay works as well so that we don't have that bottleneck, but that we can break things into these smaller usable things instead of a three-year project that doesn't end up delivering the value we want. Sure. I certainly would say that as I approach it on the team, I'm not here to control. Um, I like the word govern in terms of guiding and steering. Um, I really rely on my analyst background um, to play the role of a BA. Sometimes I just roll up my sleeves and get in there and do BA work um, to get my hands dirty. And that really helps when you're building features and epics and use cases in a pipeline. And often you can have an opportunity to say, oh, here we go. The feature we're building today is the metadata catalog. And by the way, I need to have a list of the glossary terms. And I'll put up my hand and say, that's a governance thing. I'm happy to develop that list for you. And so I'm actually adding value to the team without waving my hands and saying, I'm here to govern everything on the program because then you become a bottleneck. Then nothing can get past, you know, and I, I think it's important as governance people not to lie down in the road and say, we can't do this until we have all the policies lined up because in this real time world that we live in today, we have to remember that we have to have something to govern. We have to have people on a product to govern. And that means that you have to have stakeholders and you actually have to have delivered software. I am in no way saying the governance should be an afterthought. And I'm not saying go ahead and build it and then stick governance on at the end. I'm saying run alongside, but don't get in the way. Yeah, and, and I think that, I mean, specifically, uh, Jamak, even in her book, she says, I was thinking about titling this something different than governance, just because governance has this negative connotation. But she literally just says, like, I am returning to the the original definition of literally what you said of guidance and steering. Um, but that uh, what I think of, you know, governance, the, where I'm seeing success is people are doing that value add, right? The how do we move forward on things concurrently? How do we move forward? How do we measure what our risk is and, and have some risk tolerance and make sure that we're not doing silly things that are overly risky, but that we, like you said, we don't have to have everything figured out as if this is the, um, 
make or break for the company when we're starting a project, right? If it, if every project starts as if it's make or break and we have to get it perfect up front, we can't move. We can't do anything and we're, we're blocking that progress. So how do we get to incremental value delivery as we learn and we say like, you know, I say a lot of the aspects are CYA, you know, cover your dot, 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 but so, but like, don't, uh, don't get in that way. And I think that's, that's good to hear somebody who's got a lot of that governance experience saying, yeah, I keep telling, and, and I have to remind other people that I'm not going to get in their way. I'm here to help and things like that. How would you recommend, you know, the governance folks have that conversation? You know, we talked a little bit about this, that you're, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a professional actor as, as well, or, or, uh, uh, you know, performer. And so how do you think about kind of setting that stage, you know, both, uh, you know, theoretically, but also like having the conversation to be like, this has been a, a pain in your, in your butt before we're going to change it. So it's not, we're going to make this the wind behind you instead of it's something that's poking in your back. It's lifting you up from behind. Like, how do you have that conversation? And do people believe it or do you just have to do showing as believing or, you know, like, how does that work? I would say that not all governance is created equal. <laughs> there are certain aspects of governance, starting with infrastructure security and data classification that are non-negotiable. If people can get through your firewall and get at your crown jewels, then you have failed as a governance expert. That's the bottom line, that making data safer is really important, especially in this climate of data breaches and in the lack of trust um, in the digital environment, um, where data has to be safe, especially corporate data, um, it's is a question of corporate integrity. Um, data classification is extremely important because you need to know what the organization has already classified as confidential and restricted. And if you are working in the governance space, you are more than likely already working with confidential and restricted data because the governance required for general and public data is so much less. So you can kind of turn your back on some of that stuff and say, all right, let's, number one, let's focus on the stuff that's utterly necessary for external compliance and for risk management and for classification to protect things like attorney-client privilege and trade secrets um, and the stuff that really makes a business go. That stuff you can't let go of. You need to engage the team. And uh, here again, being an advocate for that, uh, being a champion means making sure that your delivery manager, that your architect, I'm very fortunate that both of mine are completely engaged and doing a lot of this work. Governance is not something that one human does. So being an influencer on a team is very important rather than the idea, and again, I'm I'm extremely happy in my current situation. I've got a dream team where everybody goes, oh yeah, governance is a good thing. Tell me what it is again. But they know it's a good thing. Um, 
which is great. And I have the opportunity to explain that. Um, but it also means that it's everybody's job on the team to keep data safe, secure, and shareable. And so uh, how do you um, work with those teams to shift that? You know, when we talk about shifting governance left, there's shifting it in the build process of data that we're doing, and then there's shifting responsibility left. And so, you know, within the, you know, what the platform should do in a mature mesh versus what it starts out <laughs> at the beginning, you know, some of it's more manual than you'd like and things like that. But a lot of people have also said, well, our first, you know, five or six use cases, we're going to have things that are governance light needs, right? That if that this is not very sensitive information, this is not something that where we're going to get significant value from it, but we're also not trying to figure out as if, we have to protect this in such an, an insane way when we're just figuring out how to share data in general, how to do this in general. So how have you been working with, with the teams to get them to uh, where that what is governance is no longer the question? Like it, it's, it's yeah. fine when they're like, OK, you're handling it. But at some point they have to be like and whether they call it governance or not, a lot of times you find out it's like, oh, I'm doing these six things. And it's like, well, those are all parts of governance. So you're already doing your governance. You just didn't title it. <laughs> so that's fine as long as it's taken care of. Yeah. But like, how do you shift that left in the process and and uh, ownership wise? So I think you can shift left in a couple of different ways. Number one, you can shift left in the project um, timeline so that governance is engaging. As I said, I was uh, I had the opportunity to come on six weeks after the engagement started. Um, so I was able to be involved in a lot of the initial interviews and identifying what some of those non-negotiable areas were um, in making sure that when you are consulting, you are walking into an organization that very likely has some kind of corporate governance in place. You can't be, especially not a large company today, without having a governance framework. So you're not necessarily starting in a data mesh from a greenfields environment. You need to understand that you are going to be governed by the corporate governance as well as creating governance frameworks for your users. So being aware that you're part of a framework that um, you need to work with the um, whatever the IT organization calls itself, whatever the legal function calls itself, if there's risk management involved, um, just engaging as a consultant with those folks and making sure that they know there is governance on your project is an important way to start. So being aligned at a level high enough that you can get to those folks and listen to them about what they need your project to do uh, is a big thing to get to do at the beginning of a project, just so that your presence is part of the awareness of that there is going to be a, um, a well-governed, organized manner of approaching the management of data. And how do you think about the where that splits between, you know, especially when you're talking in a data mesh journey and implementation between the team and, and the platform, like where, you know, uh, I, I'm 
writing something about uh, Mac's book at the moment. And it kind of feels like in some of the language, it's it's hand wavy as to, and this is what you should do. And it's almost as if it's a magic platform. And then at the end of the, the platform chapter, which I think is chapter four, she literally just says, and, you know, thinking about all of this, it's not going to be perfect when you start. So you just get going and that type of thing. And then, you know, into the, the governance chapters as the, the fourth pillar in chapter five. But um, how do you think about having that conversation with the teams and going, you have now new responsibilities, but the responsibilities are to communicate rather and so that we can decide on the best thing and that we can make the implicit explicit so that we do not get ourselves in trouble and that we do create the most value, but that it's it's about driving to that value while protecting ourselves. We here are some non-negotiables, like you said, but like that the extra bit of governance work is all about adding value. And that I know that's a hard question to kind of answer, but it's it's like how how have you been working to put it together to get them bought in that this is the thing that actually creates more value as you you add more governance, it's not more um uh, additional layers on top, it's better steering to drive more towards exactly what we're actually trying to do. It's being more efficient in getting towards that value. As a member of a project team, as an engagement team, one has the same obligation to deliver value as anybody else on the team. And the team has an obligation to deliver value to the client. So you can't just say, I'm the governance person and I'm here to deliver governance value. No, I am here to deliver business value to the client. However, that is going to define itself. Now, I'm going to be a bit of a radical and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this because I'm going to say that data mesh may be a new way to architect the management of data, but it doesn't come out of nowhere in terms of users needing to put data somewhere, get it out of there, and manipulate it while it's there. And at the end user level, when you have deployed a data mesh, if the fact that it's a mesh is completely invisible to your end user and they can touch their data and manipulate it however they want to, and it is stored safely and securely, I think you won. So I, I have talked about my unicorn farts theory, which is anytime you're talking to anybody not in the in a data function on the data team, when you're talking about data mesh, call it unicorn farts. And then they're like, well, boy, I would never say unicorn farts to a business person. It's like, then don't say data mesh because they don't yeah. care. No, they don't. They care about what this means, what this drives to, what, what are the changes, why? Like, what is the business value creation? They don't care if, you know, it, it is powered by unicorns in the background, as long as it's scalable and that it's reliable and trustable and it creates business value. That's what matters. And this is where I think some of the conversations around data mesh really derail because, you know, when you talk to Jmac or you talk to a lot of the, the consultants like yourself, where it's like data mesh is implementation details, right? It is not the strategy. The strategy is the thing that ties to the business strategy and data mesh is a large chart part of the implementation details of the data strategy, but it isn't the strategy itself. 
data mesh doesn't create value in and of itself. It creates a whole bunch of, of potential to reuse data and to leverage data and be more nimble and scalable. But if you're not finding good use cases, if you're not working with the teams, if people aren't bought in, if they're not leveraging the data, then all you've done is data work for the sake of data work. So I, I don't think you're radical. I think this is a, a, a perception that some people think that when, when people are talking about data mesh, they get too focused on the implementation details. And it's like, well, the other stuff is almost like just obviously implied, right? Like, and that's where, where I think we need to, when we talk about these things, get a little bit more specific about that. Because why do the work if it's not driving the value? I've been involved with large-scale implementations for a long, long time. I have survived not one, but two SAP implementations. I have been on the front lines twice for Salesforce implementations, for CRM, for ERP, for data warehousing, for data lakes, for data mesh. There's the data and there's the container. Never confuse the pipes with the water. Don't confuse the mesh with the data. You want to make sure that the data is, again, safe, secure, shareable, and easy to use. However you do that, I actually have developed a a vision of, of my own to think about a data mesh as a land of lakes. That is, if you can, you can talk to data users, right? You can say, have you heard of a data lake? Have you heard of a data warehouse? They're like, oh yeah, a data warehouse is where you put your data, where everybody gets, everybody puts it in the same place and it's terrible because nobody can get it out. And have you heard of a data lake? Well, yeah, it's, Everybody puts their data in the same place and it's terrible because it's a big mess and nobody can find their data. Like, okay, great. Now, what about if I told you that you could have your own data lake where you got you could organize it the way it made sense to you and it could have structured data in it if that was what you needed? They're like, yeah, that'd be good for me. I'd like that. Um, okay, there you go. And, and we're going to make it simple to provision. We're going to make it so that you focus on what matters to drive the value from. Yeah. Um, uh, Jmac is always uh, hesitant to do more water analogies just because everything in data is about water. But I, before I came to data, I wrote a book on the National River Conservation and Systems in Canada, and I was a river conservationist for 20 years. <laughs> so you're not going to pry me free of my water analogies. But I get it that we need more. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about working with teams to drive to actual value. Like we, we, talk, we touched on it a little bit, but like, where do you think, what should be on the platform? What should be on the team, on the product teams when you're thinking in, in a data mesh term of how do you actually move forward with this? Because people are, again, a lot of people get stuck and caught up on governance is my blocker. I have to get governance perfect. And you've talked about the, like, you know, kind of cover yourself, make sure that you've hit these things, right? You know, not all governance is created equal. That's what, what's probably going to be the episode title. I like that a lot. So, um, but how do we think about 
what should be on who, when, and when do you think about automating that? Big, big question, but like, how do you start to think about that? How do you, how would you talk to an organization at the very beginning of their journey about discovering what should be on, on the platform side versus the product team side? Well, the product team is responsible for the pipeline. Okay. It's got users who want to use the platform. They don't know anything about the platform. They may not know anything more than that there's a platform that they need. Um, Sometimes just talking about it as a platform can be awkward. Um, Sometimes a more useful term that we have found to use is an ecosystem. So that it's not necessarily a platform that you stand on, but that you can live in your habitat, in your ecosystem. And there you go. See, it's it's a biological analogy, but it's not about water. How about that? <laughs> um, so you're going to have your own habitat. Um, the product team needs to make sure that they take people on the journey from understanding what this platform or ecosystem is about and how it can help them and how it can deliver value to handing over a set of user stories that is clear enough to the platform or ecosystem team that they can actually deliver that value to the business user and partner with them so that they get value out of the platform when they step into it. And when you're thinking about like, do you have specific things where you would say this aspect should be platform, this aspect should be product? Or do you, or is it something where you kind of have to discover that at each organization? Is it that, hey, we're going to set all of our policies and we're going to do that policy as code and all is that, or is that too far to go early days on a platform build? I certainly would say that governance is a bridge role. Um. Again, I'm, I happen to be extremely fortunate. I sit on both our product and platform teams. Um, and when we are working with the technicalities of metadata and naming conventions and data quality, then I will roll up my sleeves on the ecosystem team and work with developers. When we are working with the pipeline and I'm trying to understand what it is we're going to be governing six months from now, um, I'm going to need to understand what the use case overview is and what the technical stuff is going to be all about and gathering requirements, if you can say that term in the second quarter of the 21st century. Um because requirements are a thing of the past. I want a platform and I want it to do what I want it to do. And I want it to do it now. <laughs> well, and, and the funny conversation is how much is, okay, you're giving me requirements versus what are you actually trying to accomplish? And then let's figure out what you actually need. And what if that drives value? Cause you're asking for these 12 things and two of those drive 90% of the value. Let's focus on those two. And then we can figure out if there's additional value in trying to serve to the, the rest of it. But yeah. So, you know, governance adoption, you're, you're working with your teams to, to get it. And they're, they're like, yay, we, we get that there's value here. Like, how do you 
unpack that whole federated computational governance? Or are you not talking about that to product teams? Are you not, you're talking about that to the platform team of like, hey, we need to, to make this so this works like this, but you're not saying that to the, the product teams or are you, or how do you unpack that for them? Well, it's a big, scary term and it's worse than unicorn farts. <laughs> Federated computational governance is not something I would say to somebody who is new to data mesh, period, end. Um, I find that I talk about the people and the federated organizational side more with the product team when I talk about stuff that has to be global and has to cover everybody, like data classification and infrastructure security. And then talking about policy as code, the first thing you have to do is ask your users in your use case development, where are the opportunities for automation? And don't automate in advance of your users. Policy as code is going to have to meet the users where they are. If you automate something that users aren't expecting to have automated, they will be extremely surprised and disoriented by the platform. Can you give an example of what that, because I, I guess I'm thinking if I've automated something that you shouldn't have to think about and that you shouldn't have ever even had to deal with, isn't that something that they're going to be happy with? Is it is it purely a communication angle or is it like... It's a, I would say it's communication. We need to know what the users want to have automated and what they want to not think about. A lot of users today are going to be extremely articulate about manual work that they do that they would like to not have to do. I think that's... Do you have like? Can you give an example on this of of maybe one thing that you think that people might try and automate that shouldn't be automated, or that people, or that one of those things that is surprising that that maybe the platform team wouldn't think, oh, I should automate this. Like this is this was one of the big ones. Was um, a lot of people have said the data product blueprints, especially like standard SLA sets, right? Okay. I'm going to, this is the standard set for freshness, for data quality, or, you know, these five different aspects of data quality of, you know, completeness and accuracy and timeliness and, you know, all of this stuff that here's just the sample thing that most people use because then you have a starting point. It's the like, so tell me about yourself versus asking a specific question. You know, I even say that about the introduction that I asked people to give on this podcast of I'm tell you beforehand that I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself instead of just put you on the spot and say, tell me about yourself. And so like, how do we think about that kind of aspect in, in data and making it so that, that we can find the things that are toil versus the things that we could automate but shouldn't because there's more value in somebody thinking through this or there's more value in a person doing this rather than a machine doing it poorly. I think one example I would choose is in analytics when you are running standard tests versus doing discovery analysis. When you're running a standard test and you're running it again and again and again, um, and you want to just turn out whether it's a data quality report or whether it's a scientific experiment. If you want your results 
and you want to run that as part of your job and it's what you do every day, then that is a repeatable process. If you are generating data that you want to explore and find out something that you don't know already, then you're doing discovery analysis and you do not want to automate that because a machine will jump to conclusions and you will not be able to see the things that a human might explore about a data set um, because you've automated it too soon. Yeah. Yeah, there's that uh, correlation causation. There's a famous XKCD of that, of the saying, oh, before, you know, first person saying, oh, I'm so glad I learned about the difference between correlation and causation from the statistics class. Or, you know, I've, so I've been taking the statistics class and, you know, they taught us that correlation doesn't mean causation. And they go, oh, so it sounds like the statistics class helped. And it's like, well, I'm not sure, you know, was it just correlated or... <laughs> That's right. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I like that of, well, and, and I've talked about this before of, of we need to get really specific about like who owns what as part of the data discovery and that data exploration process. When people think about I'm handing you data, that's what the producers think is I should just hand you data. And the consumers are like, no, you need to generate the insight for me or you should generate the insight and tell me the so what. Right? Especially execs in a lot of cases are like, tell me the so what. Don't give me the information and let me infer. You know, tell me what what the information says. Like, what is the insight? What do you think should be the so what? And then we'll discuss the so what because that's what matters of what the action is versus the information in and, in and of itself has value. And it's like, not if people can't use it, not if people don't use it. And so like, how are you having that conversation as well? Cause it's, it's, it's one that, that feels like it should be obvious when it's said out loud, but it's so implicit that one side thinks that I've delivered the value I'm done. And the other side's like, I'm waiting for the insider <laughs> waiting for the so what? So I'm going to put my classic data governance hat on and talk about a term that I personally hate, but has a lot of traction in the industry, and that's data literacy. Um, and, or data capacity, sorry, data fluency. Um, and if somebody is fluent in data, then they're going to want to drill into some of that information so that they can have an intelligent conversation about the so what without necessarily jumping to a conclusion um, if some of the data is um, simple to analyze. And I know that that's, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I just did a user assessment with the team. Um, and there were six questions and three of them were quantitative. And the Microsoft Teams form actually just did the analysis for me, right? They did the viz. And I was able to jump straight to the so what. Um, I think we're we're departing somewhat from data governance and getting into data management, but that's okay because I like analytics, um, and that's we can play with that. But I was giving you an example of stuff that maybe shouldn't be automated. Something I think probably should be automated is once you have established data quality criteria then you shouldn't have to go building um, exception reports. You should be able to 
identify and take steps to remediate that data quality without running pie charts and looking for big blocks of nulls. Well, and I, I think the this we you know I don't want to get too far into the data contracts conversation because that's a whole another uh, you know that's big, big scene, yes. yeah that's a big can of worms. But um, I think the most important aspect for me of data contracts is that there's it's almost that there's a um, an ecosystem around contractual terms that the way that things are measured are the same from data product one to data product two to data product three, even if they have different SLAs, SLOs, like if they have different things that they're trying to deliver on, that's totally fine. But that I, as a consumer, don't have to learn team one's definition of accuracy is different from team two's definition of accuracy is different from team three's definition of accuracy. And then so we can have something that is managed at that interface level, that is the technical inter, you know, interface. And then the humans can have the conversation to actually exchange information instead of just treating exchanging data as exchanging information. And so exactly what you're talking about, like that same thing of the contract should be like, what am I guaranteeing? What am I saying I'm going to do here? And then, okay, as a consumer, I need to talk with you about what are you actually trying to do? Because I might have something that's better, or I might be able to tweak this to better fit your use case, or you know, how do we drive to your value? How do I maintain your value, right? If you don't care about these three columns and, you know, I've got five consumers and the original consumer really cares about columns, you know, three, four, and five, but the other four consumers don't, then if use case for the the consumer number one goes away, then I can drop columns three, four, and five, save money, save effort, save time and things like that. Like there's all these, these things that the the conversations don't, that the contracts people are trying to uh, treat it as exchanging information, exchanging value instead of maintaining trustability, right? That, that I can actually use this and that I know this. Well, I think a lot of it in terms of contracts and in terms of exchanging data depends on how diverse and disparate the data is to start with. And this is going to take me back to something, a point I wanted to make earlier. Um, why people choose data mesh? Is it because they are migrating from a centralized system and they would like to unpack their data? Because they have discovered that there are pieces that don't fit in their data warehouse or their data lake and their unified system? Or are they trying to bring their data together because they haven't had success in centralizing their data. And so now they're choosing almost a, a greenfields mesh because they know that their data can't be centralized and they're choosing a more diverse, uncentralized, I'm not going to call it decentralized, but the, I, I'm distinguishing that, the say, we are intentionally not putting everything in the same big bucket you're going to have very different experiences of looking at data if you've got a great big data warehouse that is sucking in four ERP systems and three CRMs, and it's all kind of standard back office business data that's running the order to cash pipeline. Then if you are working with insurance data, 
or healthcare data or research data that some of it's going to have a structured format, some of it's going to be extremely disparate. Business units may have completely different definitions that are legitimate and necessary to the running of the business. And if you try to force that governance into under making sure that everybody uses the same definition of accuracy, you'll break the business. And you can't do that. I really like that that thing that you're also talking about of the very different perspective in coming from either overly centralized or kind of that chaos, disorganized, decentralized, right? That that's where a lot of people are like that that are in or maybe not even chaos, but it's very, very siloed. And that both perspectives are valid and both are like, how do I do this? How do I think about this? And one is kind of thin slicing off of that centralized uh, thing to create data products to then be like, oh, we're replacing what was in the the data warehouse, but we're, we're thin slicing and moving this off or it's new use cases or things versus very, very data siloed. It's like, hey, we are trying to figure out how we actually can create that ecosystem to play together nicely but that we're still not saying no. Now we have all this centralized control, and so yeah, I, I you you were wanting to talk about that kind of classic governance and data mesh governance, and and how that that kind of interweaves through a lot of these. So I want to give you some space as well to to talk about that. So I think classic governance has grown up alongside of the origin of the data warehouse, where you get to see all the mess in the first place. Um, and then line of business systems that have the really what you're what you're buying when you buy an ERP or a CRM is you're buying the data model and the business process that that data model drives, and you're you know you're you're driving turnkey systems. Um, and let me just make a comment that I never saw a plain vanilla implementation survive anybody's business data model. <laughs> It's it's that whole, you know, your your plan of attack or whatever never survives first contact with never survives first contact. I I just they actually they offered to make me a coffee cup in stand up this morning because I said no taxonomy survives first con first contact with the data. And they said, okay, Lynn gets her mug now. <laughs> So anyway, what I was trying to say is that governance has come from a highly centralized perspective because the object of the game was to try to structure, organize, guide, and steer data that was becoming more centralized over the last 20 years. I think when we are starting to look at born digital implementations where you're not starting from a centralized space where they're deciding to do a data mesh or a data fabric because one of these centralized approaches they know aren't going to work. One of the things that I certainly am experiencing on a, on an engagement like this is that there's a lot of dark data at a lot of, different levels. There may be data that's never been anywhere in a centralized system. It sits on people's desktops. It sits on file servers. It sits on thumb drives. 
you're not going to know anywhere near enough to govern that data at the domain level because you don't know what it is until you can see it. And so governance becomes a process of convincing people to trust a system enough to put their data in, looking at the catalog, because you're going to have a catalog for the first time, and then maybe acknowledging that the mess of naming conventions that you see is the first step toward collaborative agreement about changing behavior. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that everything that you said, kind of it, that last sentence of changing behavior wraps through all of this of like convincing people there is value to doing this. Because if you don't convince them that there is value, then they're always going to be pulling back. But, uh, you know, I think it, it transitions well into what we were planning of talking about of what's in it for me. Like, let's talk about different aspects of what's in it for me, you know, whether we're going to a, a new producer, a consumer, you know, somebody who has you know, data, but is, doesn't want to become a producer in and of themselves, but that they're, they're kind of a processor and they don't want to be, you know, they, that's a part of their job is to be this intermediate processor. And it's like, well, we can find something to do that has more, (laughs) more business value rather than just doing the processing and we can leave that to the system. But like, what, what have you been seeing from, you know, not getting overly specific or anything, but what have you been seeing with working with, with the clients or, or around data mesh as to how do you talk to what's in it for me? How do you talk in general at the data mesh level and at the governance level where it's like, this just sounds like I have to do more work versus this sounds like it's creating more value and it's actually lowering the overall work because it's doing things ahead of time instead of cleaning up messes. It's, it's you know. Well, I will tell you that I have the exceptional privilege, which I would advocate very strongly for anybody in a governance role to have a dedicated OCM and adoption team for organizational change management as an integral part of the product team. The, our product team is structured in terms of adoption and governance. That's what our product team does. And everything we do in terms of pre-sales has to do with bringing people into that pipeline in a way that we're going to onboard them through adoption and guide them through governance. And that's a way of thinking about the pre-sales pipeline that I think is very useful that adoption and governance go hand in hand. We collect with them every time we talk to a client and we make a point, we build personas, Um, We talk about what's in it for me with each of our users. We distinguish, interestingly, what's in it for me as an individual from the the quantitative business value and the ROI to the organization. Because if you're going to drive individual change, you need to engage that intrinsic motivation to do good work. And these days... It's a very different space than the Dilbert years when a pointy-haired boss could tell you what you do and you had to do it. The future of work is here and it's now. People are managing their own data in their own ways and they are going to get as creative as they possibly can. Uh, They are going to use whatever tools they have available to them. And 
if you are building a data mesh, you had better be prepared to be as productized as all of the freeware out there, or your data is going to stay on the user's desktop where they can manipulate it with the tools they know how to use. Yeah. If if you take away functionality, if you take away the value, why would they come to this? Why they're going to fight you? And uh, I I thought there was a really interesting thing that um, it's now almost two years old. There's a a webinar with uh, Emily Gorsinski from ThoughtWorks, and I think it was with Jamak, but she was talking about um, that dark data issue where they saw a, a 10 to 100x reduction in copies of data, right? When they did data mesh and people were like, that makes no sense. And it was like, no, it really does because everybody had copied this aspect of it for into this place and copied this instead of going, I know that I can get this again. So I'm going to do my work on this now. And maybe I'm creating a data product. I'm creating something where I do need to create that copy of data because it's then serving something additionally that has additional fit. Or I just need to run the report based on the incremental information. So I might store a single copy and then just pull in the incremental or I might pull in the data that I need each time or, you know, we're going to figure out what's most efficient. But that you you stop having these, you know, v, as somebody who's, uh, you know, has worked as a spreadsheet jockey for years and years and in all sorts of different uh, contexts of, you know, V, X, 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 final, you know, uh, <laughs> no, really this time. No, seriously, this is V2, right? And, and that you're like, okay, we can get to a world where, this is embedded and that you you can trust, not just trust the data, but trust in the ability to get back to the data, to be able to pull this again, that this source is clean and that I can trust it, but I can also trust that it will be maintained and that it will still be there. So I don't have to create a copy just in case this source goes away. Right. Like that, that is, is such a different perspective. And are, are you finding that people get that at the start or are you finding that people are like, you have to convince them or. In the particular engagement that I'm working with right now, we have this very disparate, very dark data um, that I think is going to be a long time coming to the awareness that there are multiple copies of anything I think in a very diverse and disparate environment, the copies may be important to the history of the story that people are trying to tell. Um, And sometimes I've seen people with very, very structured version histories. Um, Your your comment about V whatever, whatever in the naming conventions made me think about the first thing, first time I ever saw something that I recognized as a data lake, and it wasn't what you would call a data lake, it was a SharePoint farm that was 80% full of Excel files. Yep. Now that is the definition of unstructured data being stored in a highly unstructured format. Yeah, it's it's hilarious because the Excel it feels like it's structured, but it's not. It's really not. Like the, the more that you start to dig into anybody's own spreadsheet, well, and the more I I actually studied that data quite carefully because I we 
This is back in the days when storage cost money. It doesn't anymore, right? But we used to actually have limits on how people, this this is so long ago, I'm going to date myself. You had to open an IT service request if you wanted more storage on your site. This is before, you know, Microsoft gave everybody two terabytes and it was over. Uh, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, we used to hand out little dollops of 300 gig at a time. Um, and people would ask for more and we would try to figure out Back then, we wanted to know what they were doing with it, like we thought that was our business in corporate IT. Um, and what they were doing with it was sucking data out of the ERP or the CRM system. So it was highly structured. It was tables that were coming out of SAP and Salesforce. And they were doing their own joins and analysis. Yeah, And they were doing it with front office tools. And some of them had built um, very elaborate SharePoint and Power BI applications to do it. Um, and there was this whole, again, it used to be called shadow IT. I wouldn't call it that today. I would call it the business being in charge of their own data. Yeah. And I think that flip is a part of what data mesh can enable is that we've got to democratize data. We've got to make it something that isn't part of the back office IT plumbing anymore. Everybody needs data and everybody needs to be able to do to do their job in a data-driven manner. Yeah. You need to be able to add value to your work via data instead of every aspect of your work has to be entirely data-driven and all like it, but it versus like, hey, there's data that can help you do your job better. Like let's make it so that you've got that. But so I uh you know we've talked about a, a bunch of different stuff. I wanted to kind of wrap up around the conversation around aligning stakeholders, because this has been something a lot of people are trying to figure out. So we were talking about in the pre-call of the capturing the imagination of both platform and product teams with, you know, as uh, it relates to business value. So I think let's start a little bit with the platform team. Like, how do you think about talking to the platform team about creating business value? Because I've, I've had this where, uh, you know, a platform team will say, Hey, you need to move everything over to our new platform because our new platform is the latest and greatest. And people are like, it doesn't have the capabilities I need. So one, I can't migrate. Two, I'm not going to put new things on it because again, it doesn't have the capabilities I need. Or, you know, hey, we're going to do this platform work and it's going to make, you know, doing this one thing 40% faster. And it's like, well, is that a bottleneck for anybody? Like, how how do you think about aligning? stakeholders on the platform side to actually creating value instead of creating cool technology. We just agreed on the platform and product teams that we would use the word capability on the platform side and to try to communicate that stacking capabilities unlocks use case value. That the more capabilities you build, maybe three capabilities are going to unlock one use case. Maybe they're going to have the, the next three use cases are going to use those same capabilities. So you're going to drive the idea of reusable platform capabilities, which is going to give the incentive 
to a platform team that wants their work used. Every developer I know really cares that their stuff makes it into production. And they are going to be extremely frustrated if they are simply building and building and building and nobody uses it. Yeah. yeah that makes a, a lot of sense. And, and I think that do, do you then tell them, let's figure out what capabilities are going to drive value or is that driven by the users that are asking for new capabilities? Cause I, I, I want us to stay away on the platform side from feature stuffing, right? Of I've got these things that can do all these cool things instead of somebody needs this capability to drive value. Like how do you find those new capabilities? At the bottom line, you've got to have a handful of capabilities. And by a handful, I'm quite specific that I mean three to five. Clearly identifiable handful of things that your platform can do. And the three things that it has to be able to do are get data in, process and manipulate data in some way, and get data out. And if it can do those three things, and and by the, by getting data out, I mean make it visible in a catalog, make you to be able to find it securely through data access, I mean be able to extract it and manipulate it again, or ideally manipulate it within the data mesh environment. But if you start with those core capabilities, then you can map them fairly quickly to incoming use cases and say, oh, good, then I've got two more use cases that are analytics and AI. Um, so now I'm going to build the analytics use case. I'm going to build the analytics capability, and I'm going to map that in the pipeline to four people that are waiting for analytics. Great. Um, so I'm going to put analytics on top of that, and then I'm going to start engaging with um, large data for modeling for AI. And that's going to be another capability that I've got a group of people in the pipeline lined up waiting for it. And so one of the things to do in the pipeline is to identify which of these and you know as soon as you can in the qualifying stage before you have committed to them to identify what makes the best use of existing platform capability versus what is unique and you're going to have to build new because not everything is going to be a platform capability that's the one of the cool things about data mesh is that it's a toolbox and that you can and that you can um you know eventually you want to make sure you start with a chef's knife and don't try to build a Swiss army knife that's got 62 blades until you know you have 62 users that are going to use those blades. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and I think a lot of what you're saying there is just like have sensible conversations. <laughs> like at the end of the day, it's, it's, we try. it's, it's, it's funny how much uh, parts of, of data work really do circle back on just like, I, I feel like that should be a post-it note on everybody's kind of monitor when they're going into, or it should be something that pops up in, in zoom before anybody can, can do anything where it just says, 
remember to have sensible value-driven conversations. So uh, we've covered a whole heck of a lot of things. We're, we're at uh, over an hour now. So I'd like to kind of look to to wrap it up, but is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to or any way that you'd want to kind of wrap up the episode in that way? I think we covered a lot of ground. It was very exciting. Um, and I think you ask a lot of very good questions and I hope I was able to answer them. So thank yeah, you. Very much so. So I'm sure there are gonna there are gonna be a lot of people that would like to follow up with you after this. Where's kind of the best place to do that? Anything specific you'd like them following up about? On LinkedIn. Um anybody who wants to talk to me at, about AIM Consulting, I'm always happy to talk about the folks that I work with. I think they're great. Um, if you would like to talk to me more broadly about, um, data mesh and data governance, I love to geek out. Um, I am particularly fond of conversations that, um, bring together governance and organizational change and governance and adoption. And finally, again, um, if you are interested in becoming a certified data management professional, um, the Data Management Association of New England offers a CDMP study group that I'm one of the instructors for, and we certify people every year. Um, so if you're interested in getting your CDMP, please reach out to me and talk to me about that. Awesome. And we'll drop links to uh, get in touch with you as well in the show notes so people can quickly do that. But again, Lynn, thank you so much for your time here today. And as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. A pleasure. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Lynn Knoll, who's the Data Governance Lead at AIM Consulting. You can find a link to her LinkedIn and Dama New England in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.